Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, open up to the book of Philippians. If you're just joining us, welcome. We are working our way through a series in this letter called Citizen, reminding ourselves of our heavenly citizenship, especially in a season where we're talking a lot about our earthly citizenship. We feel it's incredibly important. By way of reminder, Paul is writing to basically a Roman church. The city of Philippi is a very nationalistic city, a city that is largely a a colony that is Roman and full of a lot of retired Roman generals. And he ironically is writing from Rome in a Roman prison to this Roman church. And the church of Philippi is understandably concerned about Paul. They haven't seen him for many years, uh, and they've heard rumors of his imprisonment. They're probably worried about him being hurt, about his ministry being hindered or hampered in some way. And so the letter that Paul writes may surprise the Philippians as they read it because he expresses a lot of joy about his imprisonment for Jesus. He talks about joy over the boldness that brothers and sisters in Christ have experienced and now sharing their faith because of his imprisonment. He describes being joyful over Jesus being preached by rivals who are trying to hurt Paul and make a name for themselves while he's in prison. So they probably were, again, quite surprised by this letter written from prison at Paul's joy. It reminded me of a story I read about a man named Hermann Lang. He was a German Christian who was executed by the Nazis during World War II. And in his cell, on the night before he was killed, Lang wrote a note to his parents, and he said that there were two feelings that occupied his mind. He said, quote, I am first in a joyous mood, and second filled with great anticipation. And then he made this beautiful affirmation. In Christ, I have put my faith, and precisely today, I have faith in him more firmly than ever on the eve of his death. Finally, he urged his parents to read the New Testament for comfort, writing this. Look where you will, everywhere you will find jubilation over the grace that makes us children of God. What can befall a child of God? Or what should I be afraid? On the contrary, rejoice. And you read that and you go, I want some of that. That's citizen joy. It's a joy that, given often what we see and what we hear and even what we feel, doesn't make a lot of sense. Quite simply, it's the kind of heavenly joy that comes from knowing certain truths certainly. Paul speaks about these truths very plainly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And he wrote, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. And while we're in this tent, he writes, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal might be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, he says, 
who has given us His Spirit as a guarantee, so we're always of good courage. And we know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. You see, unlike citizens of the world, citizens of heaven walk through life, and they even face their deaths by faith and not by sight. In other words, what we see is never the whole story. We must never forget that. Even though we may not always enjoy the uncertainty of every chapter we face, citizens of heaven can still rejoice knowing for certain how the story ends. In sharing how he views his own life in approaching death here in this letter, Paul reveals what it looks like to be governed by what he knows versus what he doesn't know. Essentially, we don't do that very often. I think the majority of us let what we can't control rob us of what we can enjoy now or in eternity. So rather than being consumed by an ominous uncertainty about our life on earth, my prayer as we go through this is that we'll be captivated by the certainty of life in Christ. Let's take a look at verse 18, actually halfway through verse 18, where Nate ended and read through 20. It says, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul rejoices. He's said this many times and will say it more in the letter. And he rejoices knowing, he says, that he will be delivered. And in saying this, some actually propose that he is alluding to the book of Job. That perhaps the story of Job is on his mind. In the midst of suffering, Job had written this, Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he, being God, slay me. I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation that the godless shall not come before him. Job feels slayed by God. But yet he hopes in him. And he speaks to him face to face. Job doesn't hope to change his circumstances. He really can't. But he longs for something greater. Similarly, I think Paul is speaking about more than just deliverance from prison. More than just his freedom. That same word for deliverance is often translated salvation. Or vindication. See, Paul rejoices knowing regardless of whether he is actually rescued from this prison or for, from his upcoming trial, he knows God's going to rescue his soul, no matter what. 
There may be all kinds of uncertainty about his present circumstances with men, but there's absolute certainty about his future with God. And that is where his mind rests. You see, even if the world continues to imprison him, even if they shame him for preaching the gospel, or for standing for truth, even if they declare him unworthy or unwanted, Paul is certain and expects that he'll never be ashamed. He has an intense expectation that something is certain to happen, and I think it's namely that God is going to accomplish everything he plans for Paul, whether he lives or dies. And God will do this not despite his suffering, but actually through it, which is a very different way to view our suffering. This is why Paul, in his letter to the Romans, in Romans chapter 5, wrote this, we rejoice in our sufferings. Like just that statement right there is naturally in our flesh difficult. But he continues, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing for certain that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He says, suffering for Christ actually produces endurance for other suffering actually develops character in the suffering, and actually gives us hope beyond the suffering. See, if Paul's joy is only possible if he's released from prison, then that kind of hope is easily lost. Easily lost. But see, he who embraces the truth of the gospel the gospel that declares God didn't spare anything, but gave us His Son. If that's the gospel you believe in, you possess a heavenly hope. Because God doesn't spare any expense. He gives everything He has to ensure His promises are fulfilled. Heavenly citizens citizens. Hope when circumstances, at least according to our eyes and our ears and what we can tell, they provide no reason for hope. But we find hope because we are confident that God delivers on His promises. And what tells us that? The cross. The cross makes us confident of several things. One, God is not absent in our hardship. He is smack dab in the middle of it. And two, he never wastes suffering. We may not fully understand all the implications and all the things that come from our suffering, but the cross shows us we know it's not meaningless. We know it's not accidental. He's there and he is in complete control. That's the kind of hope that I need. In I think we all need. Because even if Paul is condemned by earthly authorities or even executed, 
which he will be. Not in this moment, but he will soon. He knows that he will never stand ashamed before his king. And that's what truly matters. On the contrary, somewhat ironically, by God allowing him to be put to shame, Christ is exalted. And in that, Paul rejoices. This is Paul's desire, right? He says that that he will be courageous enough to magnify Christ whether he lives or whether he dies. This is the central passion to Paul, to display Jesus with his life. And I ask you, what's yours? What's the central passion to your life? German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, who was no real friend of Christianity, still rightly said this, he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. See, many today cannot bear any difficult how because in their life, they really don't have a central why. What is the central why of your life? And I also believe that because of this absence of a central why, it's really hard for us to rejoice when we're in the midst of things we can't control. Paul has a central passion governing his life, governing his perspective, governing his attitude. And this is why he writes famously in verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ." To die is gain. These ten words are among the most famous words written by a once murderer of Christians turned martyr for Christ. Call it a life purpose statement. Call it a governing mission or a guiding principle. If pressed, I believe that most Christians would affirm this as their life mission. And they'd be lying. Oh yeah, for for me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. And they would not be telling the truth, not because they don't agree with that, or not even because it's not their desire. I just don't know if we actually think about it that much. We actually consider what our primary, central, motivating passion is. I think most of life for most people is quite accidental and not very intentional. Got a lot of English teacher coming out of me today. English playwright Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde wrote this, to live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist. And that's all. Similarly, Believing that most men lived lives of quiet desperation, American writer Henry David Thoreau went out to the woods for a couple years because he wished to live deliberately, affront only the essential facts of life and see if he could not learn what it had to teach, and not when he came to die, discover that he had not lived. Three quotes from three non believers speaking some true wisdom. 
See, the majority of people who are ever born, I think, will come to the end of their lives and realize that they never actually lived or that perhaps they lived for the wrong things. And so the question for us all is, what, what or who do we live for? Now, whatever word follows your to live is represents the governing passion of your life. That which gives you ultimate meaning, that which gives you direction, that which really gives you joy. And I don't mean the only thing you find joy in, the only thing, but the primary, the supreme, the central thing. Because whatever is, whatever is supremely central to our lives shapes who we are, shapes how we think, shapes how we experience and what we do. There are many different words people use to finish the sentence, to live is, or I live for. Power, approval, comfort, success, justice, work, achievement, religion, money, family. Many things that are good things, but really bad supreme things. Perhaps if we say, to live as Christ... Some of us say, plus work. To live as Christ, plus recreation, plus this or that, sounds better. If we're honest, I think whenever we have a plus, most often that plus becomes primary eventually. See, for the nationalistic Philippian, theirs is life is Rome. Life is Rome. And whatever Rome values. And for much of our culture, I think that life is the American dream. Even if we can't articulate it or if it's changed over the years. I think it's interesting that if Jesus asked us to leave all security and comfort and even family for him, which he did, have we ever considered what aspects of our particular American lifestyle are in conflict with that gospel? Have we even asked the question? Because see, the most basic question that God asks to every human heart is, has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken the title of your heart's trust and loyalty and delight? I mean, really, in who or what do we find that life giving stability, that acceptance, that guidance. I mean, what do we really want and expect out of life? What would make you happy? What would make you an acceptable or worthy person in your eyes? Where do you look for power and success and pleasure? These questions, I think, tease out whether we serve God or whether we serve idols, whether we look for salvation in Christ or some functional Savior. It reveals what truly is our heart motivation and therefore Lord of our lives. And for Paul, the cross changed everything. The cross changed everything. And it's interesting, it's not that he lives for Christ, 
It's that whoever Paul was, like that guy, is dead and gone. Consider what he writes in Galatians 2.20, my other tattoo verse, should I get one? I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer, like it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself to me. Like whoever old Paul was, is gone. Paul doesn't know anything else other than to live as Christ. And he, he's speaking in this verse and in Galatians like about the closeness of his relationship with Christ. It's so close that his entire existence derives its meaning from Jesus. And again, a, a majority of Christians will, will claim this same attitude. Yes, for, for me to live is Christ. And so I just ask myself, and this is where I sat this week, and I encourage you to, to sit here. If that is true, if it ceased to be true five minutes from now, would your life look any different? Because for someone that to live as Christ is going to be different than if they're living for something else. And I think it's easy and, and very Christian of us to say, oh, to live as Christ. And like, okay, then stop living for Christ. To pretend, imagine, and how do the rhythms of your life change? Because if your central guiding passion for your life doesn't actually impact your lifestyle, it's possible that your central passion is different than you might think. Citizens of heaven are strange strangers living in a strange land. They are to be exiles who, by virtue of what they know to be true, live lives differently. And they even, as Paul's going to reveal, anticipate their death differently. This is a comforting thought as we lost a good friend and brother this past couple weeks. You see, the life for the Christian is not just lived in Christ, it's lived in the resurrected Christ. It's lived with the resurrected Christ. It's lived for the resurrected Christ. Therefore, death is not something to be feared because death of the Christian is better than life. Paul says it's gain. He writes, to depart this life is to be with Christ. And we know we're not to fear the curse of death for as Paul writes elsewhere, death has been swallowed up. It's lost its power. Its sting is gone. Christians ought not fear death, and yet Paul here seems to desire it. Like, that's weird. But it's not to be confused with some sort of deranged death drive. Paul desires the fullness of salvation that comes with departing this life. This is what he means by gain. Do we view death the same way is the question for us. What do you believe you gain from death? I think the typical Christian should evaluate how they envision the better country or 
what you look forward to in terms of heaven. If asked, I think a lot of people would say a lot of things. Some it's like, oh, I can't wait for heaven. It's going to provide me rest from labor, just rest from having to work so hard and manage life and just go through the meat grinder. Like, oh, rest from that. For others, it's relief from pain. Relief from the sickness and the brokenness of our bodies. For others, they long for heaven as they anticipate recreation. And I don't, I'm flipping about this, but some people are like, I'm just going to be fishing on a river. It's going to be beautiful, right? That's what they look forward to. And then certainly, many of us look forward to reunion with those that we've loved and lost. And all those things are good. But hear me, they are not why death is gain. John Piper, I think, said it well. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven and no sickness, and with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? And that, my friends, is the heart of the matter. To die is gain for Paul and for every Christian because it means being with Jesus, the lover of your soul, the satisfier of your life. Well, in these last verses, verses 22 to 24, knowing what it means to die for the Christian, Paul shares the tension that he lives with. Verse 22 says, if I'm to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So despite his desire, Paul is certain that his time on earth has not yet come to an end. And there exists, though, a tension for Paul between what he really deeply desires and what God seems to be requiring. What he wants and what is needed. It's not necessary for Paul to remain alive in the flesh for himself. He'd rather not. But the ministry he has received is not yet fulfilled. Either by revelation or just deep conviction, Paul is convinced that he's not going to die yet. That he's going to remain for the purpose of fruitful labor, which he describes in three ways. Progress in the faith which is growing in Jesus. Joy in the faith, which is really enjoying Jesus. And glory in Christ, which is boasting in Jesus. See, success in Paul's Jesus-centered life is about helping others make much of Jesus in their own. That's fruitful labor for him. That others will 
really know Jesus more and enjoy Jesus more and boast in Jesus more. And he finds joy in doing that, and yet it is sacrifice for him. He clearly says it's it's kind of less than I desire. I, I would rather be with Jesus. But as God is the one who determines who lives and who dies and when they do, the parting is somewhat out of his control. But how he deals with those unfulfilled desires is not. And what I mean by that is because he loves Jesus, or maybe better said, because of how much he knows Jesus loves him, he is willing in some sense to joyfully deny himself and embrace God's redemptive purposes as greater in service to others. That's what his life is about. And citizens of heaven are characterized like Christ, denying yourself for the good of others, as Christ did for us. And you go, why would anyone ever live that way? Like, what, what? Why would someone live that way? And I take you back to what I first said, because you are governed by what you know and not what you don't. Like, you don't know if you're going to have a job tomorrow. You don't know how your kids are going to turn out. You don't know if or how or when you might suffer. You don't know what will happen in this election. You don't know the number of your days. But there is much that we do know. In Christ, you know you were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. You know that in love he adopted you as a child. You know that you are forgiven your sin. You know he has redeemed you. You know he has filled you with his spirit as a guarantee of your inheritance. You know is coming. You know that he purposes all things for good. You know that death is not the end. And because Jesus has not returned and you have not returned to him, you know that God still has something for you to do. And we know that no matter how hard it is, no matter how dark it becomes, we can always give thanks. And we can always rejoice, because I said several weeks ago, you are one in whom Christ delights and dwells. And you live as a citizen of heaven in a strong and unshakable kingdom of God. And the kingdom is never, ever, 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 ever in trouble, and neither are you. That's what we know. Let's pray.